This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Basic Med hits a big milestone. And Tom Haynes takes us up in the Vision Jet. The FAA responds with changes to the Airman Certification Standards. Speaking of changes, there are changes afoot for Bendix King radio owners. Ooh, yikes. All right, Dave, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk again. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And David, uh, we're going to talk about uh, Basic Med first, and that's partly because it's it's a way to talk about our guest, which is is, um, Gary Crump this week. Gary's got a lot on his plate. He does. Gary uh, heads our medical certification department, so if you've called the hotline to talk to AOPA and ask a medical question... Uh, Gary's the man, right? He is the main man in charge of all that. He's he's a wealth of knowledge. He is. And so he's been around AOPA actually for a long time and knows a lot about the history of these various petitions we've had. But really what he knows is how to help people with their individual situations. And anyone with a with a question can call our you know, PIC number and get good answers. Yeah. So let's uh, talk just a little bit about basic men and, and stick around because uh, Gary's got tons of great info about it. But uh, the, the big milestone that I mentioned leading in is we've hit already, so two weeks in, more than 5,000 people. are Two weeks and, and 5,000, it's over 5,000 and growing. Yeah. So there's a lot of interest in that. A lot of people just jumped right off and, and started filling out their paperwork and, and getting, it, getting it set. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, so really quickly, you know, I think we've, we've alluded to it a little bit, but I did want to go through kind of what you can fly and just the really basic limitations because that still is a big question with folks. A lot of people do have questions about that. Uh, I'll bet you anything that uh, Gary's going to tell us more when you speak to him later. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, he is. And we get into some of the, you know, sort of the weird situations. But now look, can, let me ask you this, Ian. Where yeah. can our podcast listeners find some of the best information about Basic Med? Because it is pretty easy to find. It is. Uh, if you go to AOPA.org, the website, the homepage, and up at the top, the very top, there's just a little toolbar, navigation. Navigation, basic med. Yeah, and it says basic med. So click on that. There's all kinds of FAQs, including the limitations. So mm-hmm. remember, six seats, 6,000 pounds, 18,000 feet, 250 knots, can do VFR or IFR, no for hire. Except, so I know people say, oh, CFIs are for hire, but they're not. Um, right. It's different. You're an instructor for hire. So you can uh-huh. also be a CFI under basic med. Exactly. And that's a cool thing for folks like you who are CFIs. It is cool. 
It is cool. It's really, it was a surprise and a really, uh, really pleasant one. Very, very so. much so. Now, I think we've talked about this a little bit. Have you thought about you're going to do the third class of the basic med? You and I actually quiz each other on it. Yeah. And um, I, I got my um, airman's medical exam about a year ago, so I'm still good you're to good. go on that. Okay. And we were t- discussing last podcast, I think, was, you know, were you or were I, uh, either one of us, going to go the basic med route? Yeah. Now, I haven't, I still haven't decided, but it sounds like you are headed down that road. Yeah. Well, one thing that I, I was thinking about was that it's like, why not just go through it and kind of see what it's like? Right. Um, and, in a way, I, I am the worst case situation. And I mean, not the sense that I don't have a special issuance um, scenario, but I was changing doctors. Right. Uh, never really. I had a sort of a, hey, welcome. Nice to meet you appointment, but no physical or anything. Okay. This guy doesn't know me from Adam, right? And it's a corporate, sort of a large hospital conglomerate type okay. of practice. Yeah. Lots of lawyers. Lots of liability. And, and a lot of people coming through the doors. Yeah. So you think, okay. man, if there's a situation where they're not going to be inclined to want to do this, right. this might be it. Oh, I see. You're thinking ahead of time there might be some barriers. You want to just check it out and see what, what it's like. Yeah. Okay. It was no problem. You found out it was no problem at yeah, all? Breeze like, right through? Yeah. I, I scheduled a standard physical with them like I would once a year. Uh-huh. And we go and I say, hey, here's the checklist. Um, can you do it for me? He said, sure. You know, I'm going to check most of the stuff anyway. Great. Um, he checked it all and, and it all worked great. It was like literally no problem. That is really cool. Very encouraging news as well for a lot of our listeners. It was. So I I will say there was an interesting sort of a side to that, which is that he gets all the way through it and he's like, "Mm, I can't do the vision. Oh, and it's because the checklist, if you haven't seen it, it's very general. It'll say like, uh, I, I don't quote me on this, but it'll say like, uh, body or arm or you know just it'll like list some random body part if there was a problem that would be where you would indicate that you had a torn rotator cuff or yeah something. yeah okay gotcha. so it also says vision but instead uh, of just saying vision it lists very specific things oh. including the color test uh, and some other stuff so he's got the eye chart on the wall like every right. gp does right but he doesn't have a color chart book uh-oh yeah and so it's kind of interesting i was talking to gary about that after we recorded the show and he said that actually there are apps on your phone, uh-huh. you can download and do the color tests. Wow, that's cool. I think Isn't maybe cool? we should we should uh, give the address for some of these apps, not to promote them, but just yeah. to let folks know that they're out there. That would help a ton of people. Yeah. So if yeah. your doc like balks a little bit and says, oh, I don't have the color book, which I can understand because it's like nobody uses the color book since yeah. the 50s. No kidding. Uh, it's like download the app and uh, see if your doc will go for that one. That is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. So, so I'm not going to ask you uh, here on the air, but I, I will ask you later for a local recommendation of a doctor to go to because, yeah. you know, Lisa and I, my wife and I, and my daughter, Lauren, we moved up here, it'll be almost two years exactly yeah. in a week or so. Yeah. And, um, and we still really needed to get settled with that. And other people around the country might have the same situation where they're sure. moving around, they're changing doctors. They might need to, you know, contact their health insurance folks or friends or family and get recommendations and yeah. m- might speed things up. Yeah. And so we are actually to help with that. AOPA is amassing a list of doctors who want to participate in basic med um, as they kind of raise their hand and as we reach out to them. Gotcha. So we'll have that coming up soon. Uh, that'll be publicized. And then we've also found some success uh, with like urgent care and occupational health facilities and that sort of thing. Oh, good. I've heard that if you know, if, you're, if your GP isn't uh, comfortable with it for any reason, it's like you can probably reach out to one of those folks. Awesome. All right, so while we were talking, yeah, I looked, at, I looked at, uh, on my iPhone 7 Plus, which I just bought, not to plug, <laughs> oh, oh. Not to plug Apple. But um, I did find that uh, vision test eye chart. And really, for our podcast listeners, if they, just, if they have a smart device, they could probably just put in eye chart, color chart, 
probably don't need to put chart in there twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I did, but several did pop up and, uh, and it looks like there, there, I definitely see at least, at least a couple that are free. Yeah. So that's cool. That is that's really good to neat. know. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was good advice. Cool. All right. So, Hey, moving on. Um, cool jets, cool airplanes. We love them. You teased it in the beginning of the show. Uh, we finally got to fly this thing. Well, not we. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Tom the Boston. Tom Hayes got to fly the Vision Jet, and it is a cool looking jet. It you know, really we, is. We've had it at at, uh, at our fly-ins in the past. Uh, we had it at Camarillo uh, not long ago, and this is a really sexy looking plane. Yeah, it really is. It's got a different look to it. Um, Tom explains this a little bit in his report. The look is basically because they designed the plane uh, from the inside out. Hmm. So it's spacious, and uh, of course, it's got a, a full airframe parachute. Yeah. Super cool. That is neat. Yeah. And one thing I got to love about this is that, you know, I, I've heard, I don't know if Cessna did this on purpose or not, but it's like you hear people say, oh, as you move up from Skyhawk to Skyline and all, even up through the caravan, right. they'll kind of fly the same. Yeah. But um, Cirrus, man, they took that just to the extreme. And yeah. the jet is literally, it, it, it's meant for, it's built for, was designed for, they call SR customers. So the Pistons, moving SR 20 up. and 22. Yeah, and moving up. And they say uh, the knobs are in the same spots. The panel's very similar. Yeah, the controls fall right into your hand. So yeah. if you're familiar with it, it's not a, not a big step up yeah. as far as that goes. Yeah, and even the speeds, Tom was saying in the report, it's like the V-refs and stuff are all very similar. Yeah, he said he, he told me that coming into the airport environment, I believe he said he came in at around 90 knots. It was that, That's not crazy fast. Yeah, no, it's not at all. No. Not at all. And so now um, this plane cruises at what? 300 knots and goes up to 25,000 feet. No, it goes to 28,000 feet. I believe. Yeah. So to yeah. go to that limit of the RVSM airspace, um, it does go 300 knots, which, so I, I want to talk a little bit about just the context of this jet, because a lot of people, a lot of jet people, people who have experience with citations and leers and other stuff, you know, they say, Oh, it's the Cirrus jet and it only goes 300 knots and everything else. But it's like, if you're stepping up from an SR 22, that's plenty fast. Yeah. That's a boost. It is. Yeah, it really is. I was stepping up from an air coupe to a Mooney, yeah. a Mooney E model, and I went from 90 knots to like 140. That yeah. was a pretty big step. Yeah. So same deal. It's like, you know, they're going to get at least an, another 100 knots probably right. and uh, be a lot higher, be more comfortable. And, you know, when you look at the price, it, it's about $2 bucks. A little bit over double what a SR-22 decked out would be. It is. But when you compare that, so it's like speed-wise, you know, it's going to burn more fuel. Yeah. But speed-wise, you're talking about sort of TBM territory. Uh-huh. And you're talking about at least a couple million dollars more for t- that's right for the difference in, in that yeah and then so in Tom's uh, Tom's article he says that basically he was looking at seventy to seventy two gallons per hour mm-hmm. in that aircraft yeah so but in an end, hour yeah. you're you're going three hundred knots yeah three hundred miles yeah, yeah. so yeah. that's uh, oh, three hundred miles yeah you're, that's that's thousand miles range right yep. so yep. you're looking at three hours yeah or so. Yeah, so they loaded it up. You know, they were, we had, uh, let's see, during the report, four people, bags, camera gear, you know, probably it'd be like a family going on a long weekend sort of ski trip or something like that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and so they were able to get, I think, about two hours out of it. Okay, so, so you're going six, seven hundred miles, miles, and yeah. that's like going from the you know the interior of the eastern coast at pretty pretty good ways down to the southeast. Yeah, you're from the mid Atlantic to the southeast, you can go from I guess the north part of the Pacific Northwest down to the upper reaches of California. Yeah, you get going a little ways. Yeah, and so if um, 
you know, if you've got younger kids or it's just a husband and wife scenario or something like that, they, Cirrus says they designed it so it could haul 800 pounds, 800 miles. That'll work. Yeah. And they found that that's, that's, that's true. If they had had one fewer person or some fewer bags that, uh, that they could take on more fuel and yeah, do that 800, 800 pounds and 800 miles. And the key for a pilot, for the pilots are that, uh, Tom says it's simple to fly and it's, uh, entirely predictable. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. So I think they're going to have success. It is, it is a cool looking jet. Like I said, sounds like a lot of money, but it's funny. I was sitting in my kid's soccer game mm-hmm. and, um, somebody, you know, he asked where I work. We talk about the, you know, flying and he's not a pilot, never had an interest really, but he's like, Oh, I heard there's this new jet and it's got a parachute. Yeah. And so people are finding out about it. That parachute makes it, that's a big sell. A lot of people are interested in that. And, uh, really what, what would be the next, the next other, uh, type of personal jet? Now we don't have the Cessna Mustang anymore. No, uh, Eclipse, they, I guess yeah, they, uh, maybe the clip. Yeah. Now the Honda jet is quite a bit more yeah. expensive. It's more jet. I yeah. gotcha. Yeah. I think otherwise, you know, it's like, you know, you're looking at used probably. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. let's, let's see what happens to the vision jet. It sounds like a great report. And I know there's a really good video that goes with that too. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Very cool. All right. So let's talk about the ACS, the Airman Certification Standards. And don't turn off the podcast. I no, know it's no, a there's boring some good subject. stuff coming on this. Really, <laughs> it's, really, it's a helpful, helpful note. Yeah. There's, um, you know, uh, always they're updating these things, the test standards. Uh, and there's, so there's little changes throughout the document, but one big one. Right. And this is out of the private. And you re, do you remember all this stuff with slow flight, the problems they were I, having? I do. It was us? very confusing. And that was a big change when we had the um, ACS go online last June. Mm-hmm. So it's been almost a year. Yeah. So they, you know, it used to be slow flight was minimum controllable airspeed. Okay. And so the idea was you get right up to the edge of the stall, any further reduction in airspeed and you're going to stall. Exactly. Okay. So FAA said, well, they didn't want this sort of negative feedback response of the stall warning horn going off the whole time and people thinking that was normal. I gotcha. Okay, so they said they changed it in the ACS originally to say five to 10 knots above the stall speed is where you fly. Okay, and maintain that. Yeah. So uh, maintain control a little bit above the stall speed. Yeah, and so it's kind of interesting though because if you do the math, some of these airplanes, like a 172, five to 10 knots above the stall was almost approach speed. It could oh, okay. be in okay. many cases like sixty knots, right? Which is not really that slow. No, you got plenty of cushion at that point. Yeah, right. Because because the stall speed is relatively low. Yeah, an aircraft that even has vortex generators can fly even slower. Yeah, yeah, much slower. So so that little bit of cushion above that is that's not really giving you accuracy and how to control the aircraft right above the stall. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And so they've changed that wording now to say that basically any further reduction in speed, increase in angle of attack, yada, yada, would result in the stall warning horn going off. So now they want you right on the edge of the stall warning horn. Kind of the way it was before almost. A little bit, yeah. yeah. So it's definitely going to be slower. And it's so funny because it's like people, or there was so much confusion about this. I, I wrote about this in flight training, and I asked a couple of examiners uh-huh. and I said, well, how do you even test this thing? Like, do you let the applicant go to the stall speed, then just add five or 10 knots? Okay. And that was your reference. Yeah. Some said, yes. Some said, no, you can't touch the stall warning horn. Oh. And so therefore, if you touch it, you fail. Clearly some confusion, yeah. confusion on that. Yeah. So now the original, I believe the original wording that when we wrote some stories about it was to, um, that the FA wanted us to, wanted, uh, instructors to have faster, slow flight. Yeah. <laughs> To begin with. So now they want slower, slower slow, slow flight. flight. Yeah. 
Maybe we'll just get back to real slow flight at some point. I don't know. Well, the cool thing about this, in, in my mind, I think it's another indication of that the FAA is really listening to the pilot community. Yeah. And they have made changes. That's pretty quick, you know, timeline, I guess, when you're dealing with the FAA, to come back and revise something that was already a new thing last year. Yeah. Last June. Yeah, I totally agree. It's a great point. I think... Uh, They're listening to, to the stakeholder feedback. Yeah. And that's a key thing. Yeah. I totally agree. All right. Now, there's one other thing that um, is key to the new ACS publication is that the commercial mm-hmm. ACS is now out. That's right. So they just launched that as well at the same time. So if you're training for the commercial certificate, throw out that PTS. doesn't apply anymore. It's the ACS. And you'll find that it's like, as far as the maneuvers go, it's relatively, you know, it's going to be the same more or less. It's just that it's all kind of in one document now and you got to make sure and read it. And Now, the whole point is to make these exercises more realistic. And and to use the thought process of, hey, if I do this, what is the aircraft going to do? What is the result? Yeah. It wasn't arbitrary. That's right. I think of it in two ways. It's like, you know, the PTS was the practical test and it was, these are the maneuvers you're going to do when you fly. And you need to memorize them and perform them. Yeah. So the ACS is, yes, it's all that, but they bring in, so examiners have had to do this situational based testing. Right. And so now basically it gives a guideline for the examiners to be able to do that within the scope of the, of proper testing. Yeah. And then talks about those risk factors, which you mentioned, which is important. And I think it's important for pilots to understand if you go, if you do this, then this other thing will happen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, it's not enough to learn about stalls. You got to know why they happen in what situation. More so, context. Yeah, that's right. And then the final thing is that it, it gave a standard to the knowledge test questions, which previously didn't have a standard. Yeah. Well, all that is good stuff, and yeah. um, you know, it's a, something that we all have to get up to speed with. And as an instructor, I know that the, just the language itself is something that you have to, you know, embrace a little bit. Oh, the yeah. ACS, yeah. But it's cool. It's cool. I'm glad the FA is listening. It's interesting to see that happen, and you know, I think moving forward, we'll see a little bit more touchy feely from them. <laughs> That's right. All right. So I want you to tell us, David. This is our. This is a bad news piece number one. All right. I'll call it Bendix King. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So podcast listeners and aircraft owners out there. So Bendix King has got a a very extensive line of avionics. Mm -hmm. And in my air coupe, I had a KX-155 radio. Yeah. I had the same radio in one of my Moonies, and I know thousands of others are out there. So Bendix King decided in a dealer newsletter uh, issued about a week ago that moving forward after July 1st, Aircraft owners will have to send their radios to the factory for repair. And avionics shops as well. We'll have to send the radios. Almost all of the of Bendix King's units will need to go to the factory and get repaired there, not at a field repair station. Wow. No That's kidding. significant. They have two about 260 different types of radios and avionics. Bendix King's been in the radio business since uh, 1937, I believe. Wow, really? Yeah. You know how they started? Oh. So the company started making, ironically enough, starters <laughs> for automobiles Bendix, back yeah. in 1911. Yeah. Huh. But um, so a lot of these uh, radio units are just built well, very stout. Yeah. And um, and I had a chance to talk to Bendix about this and, and ask them, because everything from autopilots to transponders are affected. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, what we're, they're calling the legacy radio units, the ones that we're likely to find in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. Okay, the KX-155s. Uh, exactly. And, yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of the Cessnas, Pipers, and Beaches that are out there. Okay. Even the KMA-24 audio panel, which is a very popular 
audio panel that a lot of our listeners probably flew behind yeah. when they were you know getting their original privates. Hmm. I talked to Roger Dykeman. He's the vice president of marketing and product development over at Bendix King. He said there are a couple of notable exceptions. The KX-155 and 165 lines can still be field repaired. Okay. Also, the KI-256 flight command indicator, it, it works with the autopilot. Okay. But other than that, the rest of the, the company's units have to go back to the factory. They're claiming a couple of reasons for this. Yeah, let's hear it. The first one, they say um, they want to have better customer satisfaction. Uh, okay. Okay. Now, I, I dig uh, this. Uh, I, I get it. <laughs> Wait a second. I, I no, 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 no. Wait. <laughs> they are saying that you're going to get better customer service by having to send a radio back to a factory that is like, let's face it. I mean, it's Bendix King. It's like, you know. Doesn't make sense. I know. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. And, and actually, uh, backing up just a step or two, some of our aircraft owners and listeners here will probably unfondly remember that another radio manufacturer did the same maneuver back in the 90s and the early 2000s, Narco. Hmm. And that was the demise of that company, basically. And then a lot, there are a lot of those Narco transponders that were out there. Anyway, so um, there's a, a lot of commotion in, um, in some of the chat digests, including the Beach Talk digest that we had uh, information to. And folks are really worried about this because, hey, how can you be assured that the factory is going to flip your radio around in, in a short time period? And what are the advantages of sending it to the factory in the first place? Yeah. I mean, what if you know and trust your avionics shop? Yeah. What if you like the original radio that's in your aircraft? So Bendix King wants to flip them around in what they call the SPECS program, S-P-E-X, which is basically shorthand for an exchange program. So they want to have a ton of these different radios and avionics on their benches and ready to throw in a box and send out to the end user. And the avionics shop would basically diagnose, remove, and replace the defective unit. Okay. So they still get a cut of it. The shop does, you mean? Shop still gets a cut of it. And I was real worried about that because, you know, AOPA, yeah. AOPA really stands up for our pilots and our avionics technicians. We try to reduce the cost of aviation yeah. and keep things affordable and also you need to keep money flowing. And so to me, that that was didn't seem to make sense at all. Yeah, so that's interesting. So is the deal that you never get your radio back, or is it is it a loaner that gets put in, or you really, it's just like you swap it, you never get your own radio back? Well, I'll be honest with you. That's unclear to me. Huh. Uh, when I talked to Roger, I didn't specifically ask him, hey, if I send in my radio unit number 14, am I yeah. going to get serial number 14 back? Yeah. And my guess is... And Sounds I, like not. My, well, my guess is that it depends on how extensive the, the repair would need to be. Maybe if it's just something like a you know display, yeah. it'll be pretty easy. They could use your same unit, flip it around, and just put it in and send it out. Yeah. But for the most part, they're going to have an inventory of radios at the Bendix factory, Bendix okay. factory, so they can flip them around quick. Now, they listed a couple of reasons positive reasons for this like we said better customer service okay Ooh, because they one. well they did see some faulty repairs come through they yeah, surveyed sure, their shops i mean the, that doesn't that, mean that you take control of the entire ecosystem well, back to the factory right well let's follow up on that in a second because i had a real big question all right let's it. hear about but it but roger said uh, another reason was to provide a longer warranty a year warranty versus okay. a, several, just three months okay i'll take it and then look into the future you know everyone's got to equip with adsb by January 1st, 2020, mm -hmm. rapidly approaching. Yeah. Only two and a half years left. Yeah. And so a lot of avionics shops are anticipated to have backlogs of ADSB installations. Yeah, definitely. So, so Bendix King was being very proactive about this. They don't want their avionics shops to have backlogs of 
ADS installation. So they're like, hey, why don't we just take this out of their hands and they'll have more time to do the ADSV work. Oh, so they're doing us a favor. Oh, that's my understanding. <laughs> so um, now okay. my, question, my question to um, Bennix King, and actually I emailed Greg Cohen, the, the president. Yeah. The question I had was, hey, look, what if you get a hundred people send it in radius all at the same time. Yeah. I mean, that could Tomorrow. Come, just bog it down. Yeah. Yeah. And to their defense, they said, look, David, we have done a lot of surveys. We know what parts are going out to the repair shops. Mm-hmm. We know which radios are, are in, you know, equipment is needing repair. So they really have done their homework. They've assured us they've done their homework yeah. to see what really needs to be repaired and the, the quantities involved. And there, there will be a flat rate repair not unlike other avionics yeah. manufacturers. Yeah, that's pretty typical. Not unlike yeah. Apple, for instance. Yeah. When you send in a computer with a particular problem, it's like, hey, it's 400 bucks and it's yeah. 400 bucks. That's yeah, what it is. whether it, it's $2 in parts for them or 20 or whatever the Right, when I send be. in my, yeah. my faulty Nikon cameras and lenses that you've repaired for me, thank you. But they have a flat rate system too. And it, at, at the outset, it seems a little you know, onerous. But in the long run, it does kind of even the playing field where you know what it's going to cost. Yeah, I can see that. Man, it's like, you know, I hesitate because you, you know, you're looking at a company that uh, has really suffered in recent years. They've fallen a little bit behind in the design and implementation aspect as other other companies that were more nimble moved moved quicker. Yeah, it it takes some years to get something certified. And I get that the, you know the repair shop in the, in the factory is not the same as certification in engineering, but it's like, you know, it speaks to the culture. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I hope that it does work. I mean, we're, um, I think the jury is out on this. Um, I mean, I, I hope that it does work for them as an aircraft owner. I was, you know, a former aircraft owner, I was very concerned and that's what I presented to them when I asked these questions and, uh, to their defense, I was contacted back and you know, a lot of it was explained to me, but I'm really worried about some of the avionics shops to be honest with you, because they make their bread and butter that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. All right, so last last bad news story, second bad news story. This is almost like um, what in the trade they call it a uh, a dog bites man story, right? Um, <laughs> we need to bite something. Yeah, we knew this was going to happen. Uh, Trump's budget comes out, and it is user fees. I mean, that was pretty obvious. I think we that had it talked was about happen. it a couple of times on the podcast, thinking that that might happen. Yeah, and we you know we are steadfastly against that, yes. and always have been. Yes, we are. You know, we haven't seen a bill yet out of Congress, which is obviously where it matters. Right. Um, I think we will soon. Uh, they have held hearings. Um, like you said, AOPA has remained against user fees, um, and that has been unwavering. I think the most troubling thing, actually, that's come up for me lately about this uh-huh. is um, the Secretary of Defense. Because, you know, the Defense Department was a big negative on user fees okay. before under, um, I guess, the Obama administration. And, th- and maybe that's when it transitioned is the Trump administration. And, and now they're saying... Um, okay, well, we might be able to work with this. And so I think when you get the Defense Department on board, that takes away the concern of many of uh, the senators and representatives. Oh, because it's, it sounds like they're sort of endorsing it yeah. to a degree. Yeah, so we'll see where that goes. The other side of that coin is that you know that's a huge system right now. And to privatize it would be a, a daunting task yeah. logistically Yes. in the first place. Yeah, and as we know, um, all you have to do is, is read the news and things are... Um, a little busy in Washington right now with other items. There are so, many items. Yeah. If you were a juggler, you would, you'd be hard-pressed to keep all those balls in the air. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see where it progresses. We'll keep folks informed on the website and in the magazine and uh, on AOPA Live and everything here and everything else. But, um, 
you know, nothing yet to talk about specifically. The budget... Uh, it's just a proposal. That's right. And this this could go nowhere. Yeah, that's, then, that's exactly you know, right. And, and there's so many big issues in there that are other sort of philosophical questions right. about, you know, entitlement programs and everything else. So there is a lot of chatter about the entitlements that yeah. very well might take over, you know, the airwaves instead of something like this. Although we are fighting to keep this on the table to the point where we get it solved and throw it out the window. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's great. All right, cool. So, hey, let's let's talk to Gary again. Basic Med, Gary Crump, he gets us all the way through kind of the what are the requirements, a little bit of history, um, talks about some of the questions folks are having. And um, it's, it, I felt bad for him. I took him off duty for a little while, and I know he had messages piling up from folks who were calling in. Oh, but maybe he liked the break. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I think our podcast listeners will get a lot out of it. Okay, Gary, um, thanks for joining us. I know you've been really busy lately, so I appreciate you taking a few minutes. Sure. Yeah. May's uh, been pretty crazy so far. Yeah. Give me a, l- a little bit of intro. Tell me um, how long you've been at AOPA, what you do, uh, what w- what your life was previously, that sort of thing. Actually, I just uh, celebrated my 30th anniversary last week, in fact, uh, How Time Flies. Yeah. Uh, I tell people this is the only job I've had after I graduated from college, and it is. Wow. Uh, I just don't tell people when I graduated from college. But, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but uh, prior to that, I'm, from, uh, I'm a native of Amarillo, Texas, and I got my private and commercial certificates in Amarillo. I worked in the operating room for about 10 years. I was an OR technician thinking I wanted to go to medical school and then uh, left that full-time and became a professional firefighter for the city of Amarillo. Did that for seven years, got my EMT and uh, loved that job and uh, decided I wanted to go back to school. So I uh, uh, packed up and moved to Florida and uh, finished my BS in aviation management at Florida Tech in Melbourne. And uh, Graduated in 86 and moved up here in 87 and came wow. to work at AOPA thinking I was going to stick around here for about three years and then yeah. move on to the next life. And uh, Yeah, that's what th- we all think. Things happen. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> things did happen. And uh, it's been great because I really loved medicine and I thought about doing, you know, becoming a physician. But uh, you know, after working with surgeons in the operating for 10 years, I decided I didn't want to be one of them. So yeah. and I loved aviation. So this uh, this job is giving me a chance to kind of coalesce those two uh, things I'm really interested in and it's been a great career it's been a lot of fun and I've learned a lot and met some great people and uh, work with a great bunch of people here at AOPA cool cool so I, th- I think you know people they've probably uh, read online or in the magazine or through a benefits book or something they know they can call somebody so tell me a little bit about the back end I mean you you are one of the people they called so if they call up they can talk to you um, and, and the staff that's right. We're part of the Pilot Information Center, and uh, for AOPA members that may not be aware of that, that don't take advantage of anything other than the magazine, we're probably one of the best qualified group of aviation experts in the industry. We like to call ourselves a one-stop shop, and I really think that the Pilot Information Center is one of the, the greatest hidden treasures that AOPA offers to its members, and obviously members take advantage of that to a certain extent, but we're talking to people every day that have been AOPA members for years and have never called in before for oh, whatever wow. reason. Huh. And uh, so it's it's good that we actually can reach out and talk to those people and 
educate them that, hey, there's a, there's a lot of information here. And we talk to so many people that listen to what other pilots say about whatever subject. And you know, it, it's pretty obvious that sometimes pilots don't really know for sure what they're talking about, <laughs> but they still have an opinion. Yeah, right. So finally, members get around to calling us and we set them straight because we, you know, we really do know what's going on, certainly in the medical area, but anything dealing with uh, flying in the general aviation community, AOPA should be the first place our members call us, and um, hopefully that, that word will get out and we'll uh, be able to help them out because they can waste a lot of time doing a lot of things wrong and get themselves in, in a jam, and if they just call us, we can kind of get them out on the, on the right track to start with. Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And so uh, it's actually a great segue for, for why you're here today, which is basic med. Yeah. So this is, I mean, any new process is going to be confusing. Basic med does have some particularly confusing aspects to it. But first, give us give us the lay of the land and, and what exactly is basic med? What is it and what isn't basic med? Basic med is the, the culmination of an initiative that AOPA has been advocating for as an organization since back in the 1970s. We have always felt that the federal government in the areas of pilot medical certification was overreaching in some respects and uh, required too much information and too much bureaucracy to determine that pilots are medically qualified to exercise their privileges, certainly for non-commercial operations. So uh, we've had probably six or seven attempts at changes to medical certification over the last 30 or 40 years, basic med being the most recent and obviously the most successful endeavor. Going back to 2012, there was a joint AOPA-EAA initiative to seek a, an exemption for medical certification for operations in aircraft up to 180 horsepower with one passenger, day VFR only. And even though the FAA took it seriously and actually drafted an NPRM for that, when uh, the agency forwarded it over to the Department of Transportation, it uh, kind of got stuck in a pigeonhole and never went anywhere. Mm. So uh, at that point, AOPA said enough is enough, and we decided to go the legislative route and seek help from our GA coalition in both the House and the Senate. And through the um, great leadership of Jim Kuhn, our senior VP, and our government affairs, legislative affairs staff down in Washington, we actually pulled off what I think a lot of insiders in Washington thought would never happen. Certainly, yeah. there were certain factions within the FAA, particularly the Office of Aerospace Medicine, who thought it would never happen. And so uh, we got basic med pulled out. And uh, when it was announced by the administrator in January, we actually uh, found out that there were a couple of things that we hadn't even asked for or were hoping for that didn't expect to get that were included in the uh, in the new rule. So we now have basically two pathways toward medical certification. We have the conventional Part 67 route, you go to an aviation medical examiner after completing an application online for a medical certificate, have the exam. If you pass, you're issued a medical certificate. If you don't pass, you're deferred, which means your case goes to the FAA for a review. The reviews take a long time. Sometimes uh, the process to get a medical certificate can take, on average, about 90 days. But it's not unusual for us to be working with pilots who've been trying to get a medical for more than a year. And there's lots of variables there that make the FAA's job in making that certification decision more complicated. Certainly the complexity of, of uh, cases that, that the FAA reviews now, pilots have serious medical conditions, as does anybody in our population. But with treatment modalities, new technologies, uh, people are actually surviving their maladies and actually can come back and 
um, hopefully be found qualified for a medical certificate, usually under a special issuance. Hmm. And, but, and how many special issuance do they do? Does FAA look at? It? I mean, they've got this ninety-day backlog, but is that because they have, are they just inefficient, or do they have just hundreds of thousands of these applications? They're really not a very efficient uh, bureaucracy. Never have been. Hmm. The day I came into medical certification, we were complaining about the backlog in processing yeah. deferred applications, <laughs> and we're ago. still doing it. Yeah. We're still doing, still doing that. They've made incremental progress over the years, but you know, it's not all the FAA's fault. It's the bureaucracy's fault. It's just an overburdened, overworked bureaucracy that, that um, takes their job seriously, as well they should. But in the, in the process of taking the, the, the responsibility of maintaining aviation safety for the airspace into effect, they really make the process burdensome for pilots. And now it's, it's very costly because with our healthcare industry being in the position that it's in, a lot of the testing that the FAA requires for pilots to maintain a special issuance, which is done annually, by the way, so they have to go back and repeat testing every year, a lot of that cost is out of pocket. And for pilots that are already you know, having trouble buying fuel and doing the kind of flying that they want, to go out and spend three or four or $5,000 a year out of pocket just to maintain a third-class medical, to fly maybe 50 to 100 hours a year recreationally, yeah. it's a huge burden for, yeah. uh, for the pilot community. So, All right, so you can, you can the standard third-class, second-class, first-class, you can still go to a medical examiner and get, get a medical. And so what you said, you can pass, sort of defer, which usually is a special issuance. Right. Or An AME has three choices. Obviously, if you're qualified and everything, all the, all the boxes are ticked off, the AME issues a medical certificate on the spot. And that happens in about probably 95% of the cases for pilots that apply for a medical. Hmm. It's the 5% that end up getting deferred that create this huge bottleneck and this horrific logjam of case reviews that takes so long and creates the frustration. And that's one of the big incentives that uh, led us to go after uh, what became basic med in the first place. Okay. You know, the FAA argues that our safety record and the safety of the airspace is, is preserved by the government's oversight of us medically. And, okay, maybe that's true. We've never had an opportunity to disprove that because of the system that we've historically worked under for the last 60 years. Yeah. But uh, now with basic med... That takes the responsibility away from the FAA to a certain extent. The third-class medical is not going away. Obviously, first and second class is not affected by this at all. So pilots who want to continue to get a third-class medical can certainly do so by going to their AMEs. But okay. the FAA it calls basic med an alternative medical pathway to certification and safety. Hmm. You know, we had a lot of support within flight standards for this initiative, and it really does. Uh, it hopefully it will eventually offload some of the some of the backlog at the certification division in Oklahoma City and even the nine FAA regional offices around the country. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but ultimately it would offload enough of the third-class cases that don't have to be reviewed anymore that the FAA's efficiency would increase by getting the professional pilots, those guys that rely on a medical certificate to keep their job for first- and second-class privileges, will be able to get those cases reviewed faster and get those pilots certificated in a more timely fashion than it's taking now. So there's, a, there's an ultimate long-term benefit if, if everything plays out the way we hope it will, and we're pretty confident that that's going to be the case. Okay. So how do I decide? I'm, I'm sitting there, and it's like my medical is about to come due. How do I decide, should I just go to an AME and get a third class, or should I try for this basic med process? In some cases, it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, the real beneficiaries 
of basic med are those 40,000 or so pilots, probably less than that because it's not all of those are, are um, third class. But uh, for those third class pilots that hold a special issuance now that have to jump through some hoops every year, they can now circumvent that process and eliminate that out-of-pocket expense and the delays that come with renewing the special issuance by going the basic med route. So when a member calls us and asks us, hey, here's my situation and I'm on this special issuance and I'm I fly an airplane that's covered under basic med, what should I do? Yeah. It's a no-brainer for us. We say, yeah, I would go basic med. Okay. I mean, why Why would you not? Yeah. So uh, uh, that's that's the, the real benefit for those pilots. Uh, for other pilots that have never had any medical issues, and uh, especially if they're flying airplanes that aren't covered under basic med, they're, yeah. they're, they're more than sixth place, uh, they want to fly up in the flight levels above 18,000 feet, absolutely the third-class medical is is fine and still in existence for them to continue to do that. The nice thing about it is that the FAA saw the opportunity and the way forward to create this alternative pathway, and they're confident, obviously, by passage of the rule, that we can still maintain the standards of aviation safety associated with medical certification through basic med and through the normal medical certification process. Albeit, they did have a little help from Congress. Yeah, right. But, <laughs> but they did it nonetheless. They did it. That's right. We'll give them credit for it. Right. All right. So the one thing that you you brought up a question about, um, so, you know, the choice, I think of the choice often as uh, third class or basic med, but then there's also this whole LSA factor. So if somebody's looking at, you know, they're like, well, okay, the medical's coming up or, or maybe they're flying LSA. It's like, how do you... How do you judge kind of where to go in that realm, and, and how do you try and differentiate those a little bit? Well, with LSA, everybody tries to make a connection between basic med and LSA. The only real connection there is that you still have to possess a valid driver's license under basic med, just like you do under LSA. Okay. The big, the big difference is with LSA, there's no medical certificate required per se. It's medical self-certification, medical self-assessment under the existing regulations, particularly FAR 6153. Members are going to hear a lot about that. If you go to any of the regional fly-ins or to Oshkosh this summer when we do those presentations, we're going to be talking a lot about 6153 because that's the the regulation that's been in place for decades that puts the responsibility on us as a pilots to make the certification decision that we are safe to fly before we get in the air. Hmm. And so that, w- that becomes the premise and the main tenet for basic med, as is with LSA. But beyond that, LSA is still in existence. It's an opportunity there for pilots that, who have not been denied a medical certificate previously and want to get into aviation, kind of at the at the economy version, even yeah. though you know a lot of the LSAs are <laughs> not, so not so economy yeah. anymore. <laughs> but uh, I mean, they're, they're they're really nice airplanes, and it's great that we have a, a new fleet, a whole new genre of general aviation mm-hmm. airplanes for pilots to be able to take advantage of. But beyond that, it's not related to basic med at all, and that's still some of the confusion that's floating around out there that we have a, a, now a driver's license medical under basic med, and I cringe and grit my teeth every time I hear a member say that and we have to correct them and explain no this is <laughs> this is what's really going on yeah. so a lot of members are still a little bit unhappy that we didn't get the pure driver's license medical with mm-hmm. no medical exam requirement at all yeah but the the truth of the matter is what we got through the congressional legislation is so much better than what we ever expected and yet we had to make some compromises along the way in order to get the bill passed in the first place. Yeah. So just as any other bill, a spending bill, 
a health care bill, anything else that goes on in Congress, it's it's negotiation. And there was intense negotiation over the last probably couple of years before the bill was signed uh, last July, just uh, almost a year ago. So it's uh, it's no different than anything else. So we had to, you know, we had to take the good with with the not so good. Yeah. But uh, I still believe that what we came up with um, is is just a, a, a remarkable piece of legislation and a rule that goes with it. So, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. And, and I mean, you meant you make a great point, which is like we well, yeah, OK, fine. We don't have driver's license medical, but it's like. We also aren't limited to 180 horsepower and whatever it was, one passenger and everything else. It's like we've gotten a lot more capability out of this. Exactly. And there again, I think that's where the FAA was probably certain factions within the FAA. Remember, the flight standards, AFS 800, drove the the car on on this. And Mm -hmm. they really, they did yeoman's work. Um, John Linsenmeyer and his staff in in flight standards in Washington did a, a great job of looking at the legislation and crafting the rule, the final rule for Part 68, to coincide with the legislative language. Yeah. Typically, in a legislative process, there are lots of people in the room taking copious notes, explaining you know the the logic and the arguments behind why this language should be included. Yeah. And we didn't really have the benefit of that uh, with the uh, legislation that came out in the the, the uh, FAA. Safety and security. I can't yeah. remember the acronym for yeah, it now, right. but the bill up with within which Section twenty three hundred seven certification of small aircraft pilots came about. So when the final rule was promulgated, all the FAA had to work with was the language in the legislation itself. Yeah, and as with in, very any basic. congressional language, yeah. it's there's a lot of squishiness in there. So yeah. and, and the FAA didn't have the the latitude to try to interpret. So everything that literally came out of the bill was incorporated into the into the final rule into part 68. Hmm. So we still have some questions to be answered and working out some of the the details about what what was really intended. Yeah. But we're making great headway and I think again I think the FAA really did a very good job of writing the final rule and now we just have to go out and uh, explain it and uh, make sure it gets implemented correctly. Yeah. So talk a little bit about just the process. So um you know, with third class, we know it's like we we fill out uh, the Med Express form, and it's like, and we go to a doctor. Okay, basic med is a, a little more stuff that you have to keep track of. And so, how how does that process work, and what's the most efficient way to go through it? The biggest stumbling block we're finding with members, and remember, we're we're talking now to to members and pilots who have been out of aviation for years. The medical application called Med Express became exclusively an online application about five years ago. So we're talking to pilots that the last time they did a physical 20 years ago, they still filled out a paper application in the AME's office. Yeah. So we are now, a by necessity, a computer literate society. Mm-hmm. And we're finding that a lot of our uh, uh, older pilots out there that have been out of it for a long time are not as computer savvy. So that's a big challenge is to get them onto the computer because the whole process with basic med is done basically online except the application itself or the examination done with the basic med physician okay so our team has put together a great resource section on our website aopa.org basic med covers all the angles you can download the forms it's called the comprehensive medical examination checklist it's a basically it's a nine-page document but only four pages of that is the checklist that the pilot fills out prior to going to a doctor, a state-licensed physician who will do the basic med exam. Hmm. The doctor can be an AME, doesn't have to be an AME. Okay. It can be your private private practice physician, family doctor, 
Uh, it could be your neurologist. Uh, it could be a, a cardiologist. Mm. If you're being treated for you know, a cardiac condition, it could mm. be urologist. Any state licensed physician is the way the, uh, the rule reads. And, and if you guys are, are you to the point where you're recommending, you know, somebody calls and says, well, I'm being treated for uh, AFib or something like that. Are, are you recommending that they go to a particular physician or do you say, well, whoever you have the best relationship with or it's what? kind of both. Ian, okay. actually, obviously, with the whole with the whole mindset front and center still being safety. Yeah. If if pilots are going to fly under basic med and if we get to that point where we can talk about the conditions that require special issuance, but. For anybody who feels that they're qualified for basic med, but they have a condition maybe that requires a special issuance now because they're on it, uh, uh, have AFib and they're yeah. seeing a cardiologist, we're highly recommending that, that the pilots continue to see their treating physicians just as they would normally do. Okay. Because, I mean, one of the requirements for basic med is that you have to see a basic med and have an examination from a basic med doctor mm-hmm. at least every four years. Okay. Now that's a pretty long interval between. Yeah. I mean, most f- people get physicals once a year, right? Hopefully, so, they will continue to yeah. see their family physicians and their specialists for whatever condition they're being treated for, on a regular basis. This is the regulatory requirement. Again, this is the negotiation that went on with the with the legislative um, process. Yeah. But we're we are very hopeful that pilots will you know be prudent about continuing to see their doctors, and if they don't have a a specialist physician, just continue to see the primary care doctor for an annual physical exam. Same way with an eye exam. In fact, we routinely suggest that pilots, particularly those of us over age 40, Hmm. before you go in for a flight physical, see your optometrist or your ophthalmologist for a basic eye exam. You know, there's nothing worse than to, you know, flunk a medical because your vision doesn't pass the the standards. So, you know, and that's just kind of one of the rules of thumb is, you know, be preemptive in your preparation for a a, a medical exam, be it under part 67 or under basic med. That's good advice. So you you fill out the checklist. uh, It's got some items that actually carried over from the current and existing uh, medical application form for a regular medical certificate. So to be expedient, the FAA just carried all that information over and made the new comprehensive medical exam checklist to look just like and have the same elements as a regular third-class physical. Okay. But that's where the similarities end because then once you've done the checklist, you see your basic med doctor for a basic physical exam. Again, it's the same exam that an AME would do. Mm-hmm. The big thing is nothing medical is going to get transmitted to the FAA. Now, the, the decision to certify under basic med is ultimately the pilot's decision under FAR 6153 okay. with consultation from the doctor that's doing the physical exam, hmm. whoever that basic med doctor happens to be. So if they both agree that uh, if they're on a medication or they're being traded for whatever condition, but that condition doesn't pose any risk to aviation safety from a medical certification standpoint, that's what the qualification requires. It is true medical self-assessment. Hmm. Um, the big advantage to this that I see is that in, a, in an environment where we have more and more regulatory control over our lives through our government, basic med is a, a shining example of where that bureaucratic authorization has been taken away from the federal government hmm. and the responsibility for us to maintain safety is put right back on us as the as the pilots as it should be yeah so that's a, I think that's a great you know politically philosophical benefit <laughs> of, of basic med as well okay so uh, getting back to the exam once the exam is completed the doctor signs it provides his or her state license number address phone number then, Here's where the computer part comes in. Then okay. you have to go on to, again, onto our website, 
and download the medical self-assessment course. This was uh, one of the carryovers from our exemption petition that we filed back in 2012, and it was designed to be an educational course that covered more than what a pilot would find in the aeronautical information manual or anywhere else in any of the FAA publications about the common factors associated with flight physiology and some of the risk factors associated with flying. Hmm. So the course uh, is a pretty comprehensive course that was designed and developed by our Air Safety Institute. We had a lot of input from the uh, Office of Aerospace Medicine at the FAA. The docs down there reviewed it, uh, liked it. And uh, so now we have a, a very good course that has with it a 20-question quiz at okay. the end that you have to pass. Mm-hmm. Once you've passed the quiz, you then move on to the final part of the online course, which is the completion of your basically filling in some pilot information, uh, your name, uh, your airman certificate number, address, basic demographic information, and yeah. The information from your uh, basic med physical examination, the doctor's name, uh, address, state license number. There are six declaration statements that is um, snatching people up because of the wording of the, the of the certification statements. There's an if in the middle of the statement that uh, you know, basically if, if you have a medical condition and you're being treated for that condition, you have to check off each of those six boxes, and mm. that's throwing some people for a curve because they're saying, "Well, I don't have that condition." So, well, yeah. if you read the quest, read it's not in question; it's a certification statement. Okay, and it's uh, it's a little squishy in its wording, and we're actually working with the FAA to try to get that clarified and make it a little bit easier to understand. But you have to check off those six boxes. Then you also check off one of the six is in, is in uh, the National Driver Register authorization, which we do now for a regular medical certificate that gives the FAA the opportunity to take a look at our our national driver registry record to see if we have any significant motor vehicle offenses, alcohol-related offenses, or a vehicular homicide or anything really bad like that. Hmm. And once all the boxes are checked, um, you can complete the course and submit it. That, that is transmitted electronically to the FAA without any medical information being sent to the FAA. The only information going to the FAA is that identifying information on the pilot and the doctor that does the exam. Okay, so I don't have to send the FAA the checklist, any notes from the doctor, anything else? None of that. None of that. You do have to retain the course completion certificate that gives the date that you completed the course because that has to be retaken every two years, every 24 months. Mm. And you also have to retain the checklist and the examination form okay. the rule says the le- the legislation and the rule says you can retain that in your logbook and make it available to the fa upon request hmm. you can store it electronically you don't have to keep it in your logbook if you don't want to but you just have to keep it secure so in case the fa comes you know looking for it in a ramp check for for instance mm-hmm. or an accident or incident you just have to be able to document that you are actually flying under basic med and you have met those regulatory requirements to operate under basic med hmm. okay so same as if you got ramp check today and they asked to see your medical certificate instead of handing them the medical you hand them the course completion and I mean, in this case, I guess the uh, physical completion. Right, and the certi- course uh, yeah. certificate completion. Yeah. The, uh, actually, the FAA just published some guidelines for um, inspectors to do ramp checks hmm. to, uh, for pilots that are flying under basic meds. So obviously you have to produce a valid driver's license okay. and a current and valid airman certificate and you know your aircraft documentation. Sure. But uh, you don't have to have your course certificate completion document or 
your exam forms with you in the airplane. You have to be able to produce them within a reasonable period of time if the FAA inspector requests them. But I think the ramp checks are going to focus on pilots' understanding of basic med, you know, yeah. exactly what privileges are you exercising under basic med. So I think uh, we haven't seen anybody get ramp checked yet. We're still, you know, three weeks into basic med. So, yeah. but that may happen. But uh, pilots just need to have an understanding of what their aircraft limitations are. You know, if, if they get ramp checked flying a, um, yeah, a TBM, it's like <laughs> a TBM yeah. for an example, that yeah. might be a little bit tough to, uh, to yeah. get past them. But uh, <laughs> you can provide basic understanding of, of basic med mm-hmm. and provide the appropriate documentation. Ramp checks should be no problem. We don't, we just don't see that many ramp checks for yeah, general, general aviation yeah. a, anymore at all. They're, yeah. they're focusing pretty much on the air carriers, but mm. With basic med now, we might see an uptick in it just for the FAA's you know comfort level to make sure that if you're flying yeah. under basic med, you're doing it correctly. Yeah, and like we know, it's like if there's somebody to FISDO who has a particular sort of agenda or idea of what should happen, it's like yeah, localized exactly. issues. Exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've been slammed since May 1st um, when this all kind of went officially live. So tell me about some of the questions people are calling in and asking. What are some of the misunderstandings? Maybe some of the kind of wacky requests. I mean, what, what have you been hearing? A lot of the questions come from people that hold special issuances now, and they're, they're current. They have a current medical certificate issued under a special issuance, but they're not sure that they can go to basic med because of the type of special issuance they have. Hmm. One of the gotchas in the language is there are 11 medical conditions that fall into three categories, um, cardiovascular, neurologic, and mental health that require that if you don't have a special issuance for one of those 11 conditions, you have to go out to the FAA and get a special issuance, be found qualified under Part 67, Mm -hmm. a regular medical certificate that's issued under special issuance, after which time, once it's issued to you, then you can let that medical lapse after a year and then qualify for basic med after that. Okay. But anybody else that has a special issuance, and the FAA does special issuances for hundreds of medical conditions that are not stated as mandatory special conditions in Part 67. There are 15 medical conditions that are specified in the Part 67 regulations that require a special issuance. That's the only way the FAA can certify someone with a, a history of coronary disease that's required treatment or a history of bipolar illness or psychosis or diabetes or substance abuse or dependence. Yeah. So there, those 15 are you know, no-brainers. But the FAA does time-limited certificates under the special issuance authorization for people with Parkinson's disease, for people with kidney disease, for um, um, certain types of, of uh, mus- neuromuscular conditions, and all kinds of things, asthma, pulmonary hmm. disease. Hmm. So none of those apply toward basic med because they're not one of those 11 conditions. So if you got a special issuance that has not been denied, the the issue is your most recent medical has to have been issued to you and not denied, suspended, or revoked or Mm -hmm. withdrawn. It can be either a regular medical or a special issuance. And it has to have been, you have to have held a medical certificate sometime in the last 10 years prior to July of 2006. Doesn't have to be issued then. It just has to have been valid during on or after July of 2006. That's the 10-year look-back period. Okay. So if I have, uh, you mentioned, you know, coronary heart disease. Um, if I had a special issuance for that three years ago, let's say, um, the condition hasn't changed, uh, I'm feeling good, everything looks great, my doc says I'm in good shape, There's no, I don't have to go back and get another medical. That's basically. correct. Okay. That's correct. Mm. Now, a, a little takeoff on that is if 
after you after you've qualified for basic med, which actually became effective on April twenty fourth, I believe, when mm-hmm. the FAA actually authorized the forms to be used and you could actually go out and start having your exam done. Yeah. Then basic med actually took effect on May first. So if you've been flying under basic med and then you develop, you have a heart attack, let's say, and end up getting a stent after you've started flying under basic med, you're no longer qualified under basic med. You have to go back to the FAA now and get a one-time special issuance. And then once that's done, you're qualified and legal to fly under basic med again. So okay. it's that's the that's under the eleven categories. Under the eleven medical gotcha. conditions. That's right. Okay. That's so right. you're getting lots of specific questions about does my situation happen to be one of those eleven or I had this particular thing five years right. ago or whatever right. the case may be. Okay. And everybody's situation is different. So it, that makes that adds a little color to our calls because everybody's situation is a little bit different. Yeah. And yet it all falls under the same, you know, the same process uh, as far sure. as what you're what you're going to need to do. Yeah. Some of the other issues that the members are having a little problem with is confusion in the, you know, finding the information on the website yeah. or, or not knowing anything about basic med. You know, a lot of people are, are calling us now saying, I'm, you know, what's this new medical thing? Wow. You know, we have to point them in the direction of the website and yeah. uh, you say, go out and <laughs> read all the resource information. You'll probably be fine. But um, you know, there's uh, just a lot of misinformation still floating around out there among uh, among pilots and uh, and blogs and and email exchanges. So we've got we've got our work still cut out for us. Um, and I suspect with anything that is this huge a change, this is a paradigm shift in in how pilots view their interaction with the federal government. Yeah. And it's still hard for a lot of them to believe that you know, really that's all I have to do, and I don't have to mess with this special issuance junk anymore yeah but uh it's probably going to take six to 12 months for the landscape to kind of level out a little bit and for people to begin to really understand what they have available to them and we start to clear up some of the misperceptions or the uh, miscommunication that's still abundant out there this is nothing new you know pilots all everybody has an opinion and sometimes it's accurate and sometimes (laughs) it's not and sometimes when you call going back to FISDOs you know you ask a FISDO you know FISDOs uh, a question from six different FISDOs and you get six different answers so definitely so there's there is a, a level of confusion and under misunderstanding even within the FAA ranks as well but uh we'll eventually get it all sorted out and um but I would suggest if if there are questions members or pilots can go out to our website and click on the basic med link and we have a a tremendous resource section that uh, will probably answer most of your questions if not absolutely give us a call here in the PIC and uh we can we can get them sorted out great well Gary thank you so much my for pleasure. The time, and uh, I, sh- I should let you get back to the phone. So yeah, yeah, the yeah, phones are still ringing. Yeah, <laughs> All right, just so. not as much as they were. Yeah. <laughs> All right, David. So um, it didn't come out in the interview, but I'm glad Gary gave us that tip afterwards about uh, the color chart. So just one of the many sort of intricacies of basic med that people are just going to have to yeah to learn throughout That's time. That's cool stuff. And don't forget, after the podcast, I'm going to get the, the number to your doctor. Yes, we'll do that <laughs> right now. All right. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you could find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk. You could find us on iTunes. And you could find us on Sporty's Takeoff app. All right. Thanks, David. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian.